Thank you, guys, and good morning, everyone. We are continuing along in the book of Daniel. Before we go there, Josiah loved that new song that you picked this morning. It was awesome. Um, He and I have been working uh, together, and Josiah put together some great questions to be asking of songs as we introduce new songs into worship. And one of the big questions that he asks as he evaluates a song is, is this song faithful to Scripture? And that's a great question to ask, isn't it? Does it teach us big and high thoughts about God? Does it teach us deeper commitment to Jesus? And that song certainly pulls that off, in my opinion. Uh, So I enjoyed singing it this morning. Well, let's open up Daniel. If you don't know how to get to Daniel, the easiest way to find your way to the book of Daniel is to go to the index at the beginning of your Bible, and it'll tell you the page number. But if you want to learn how to navigate the Bible... Uh, you can do this. Here's a solid strategy. Open your Bible halfway. You'll get to the book of the Psalms. Make your way right. As you head right, you're going to see Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Then there's the three major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And then you find your way to the book of Daniel. Daniel 2. Daniel chapter 2. So as we think about our passage this morning, I want to quote something from Friedrich Nietzsche. He said this, God is dead, he died of pity. Now, Nietzsche looked at the the idea of God, and he thought that it was an illusion that we had constructed. And he attributed much of the, the evil or bad things that happened in the world to this construct called God. And so what do you do with something that's not good that you've invented, that you have created? Well, Nietzsche says you just kill it, be done with it, and move on. Now, I'm not interested in giving you a philosophy lesson this morning, and I'm not really the one to be doing that. Actually, Ben here in the front could do a much better job than me. But I do quote Nietzsche this morning because, one, I think as we look at our modern society, as we look back in history, and even as we look at the scripture, there's been this irresistible urge in the human heart to cut the cord from God. Now, Nietzsche just said it in a much more brutal fashion, if you will. But even in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, The serpent said to Adam and Eve, do you really need God? God knows the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree that you will have knowledge like him. Again, Satan's basically saying God's dead. You don't need him. Move on. Doesn't it feel sometimes like God is up against the ropes? Science says, for example, we can explain our existence in this universe without God. Psychology would say, you know, all of these moral tenets that the Bible talks about with regard to ethics and sexuality and gender and all of those things, they actually repress your psyche if you follow God's ways. Even the economists are weighing in. They say it's the economy, stupid. And the idea there is, of course, if we have a robust economy that the economic machines are rumbling and moving along, then all of the problems of the world will be solved through the economy. Have you ever just in the quietness of your heart said, could being on, the wrong, or on God's side be the wrong side? Am I on the wrong side? Well, I think that the, the Jewish exiles felt this way. 
When they were leaving Jerusalem, they had suffered a decisive defeat. And in this day, the worldview said this. It wasn't just a physical defeat or an, uh, an emotional defeat. It was a spiritual defeat. When, when that city was defeated, so went its gods. They were defeated as well. So as these Jewish exiles are walking through the big grand gates of Babylon, the question that would have been resting on their mind would have been, is God defeated? Is he like one of these other local deities? And as they're asking those questions, the Bible tells us that God has a response, an answer. So let's pick up and we'll see God's response, Daniel 2, and we're looking at verses 1 through 6. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded the, that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream. And my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic. Pause right there for one second. In the book of Daniel, when it says they spoke in Aramaic, the language in Daniel moves from Hebrew to Aramaic. From here all the way through chapter 7, likely Daniel writes this way in order to write an apologetic to the nations, Babylon and Persia. Pick up again from there. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation... You shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Now, we've all had vivid nightmares. You've had them. I've had them. I think one of my most memorable ones as a child was the dream where I was falling and I woke up just before I hit the ground. I don't know what your nightmare was. That was mine. But... I've never had a nightmare and attributed it to the gods telling me something. If anything, I chalked it up to bad burritos and too much coffee the day before. But Nebuchadnezzar, as he has this dream, understands that it's a God dream. Now, is this a, a dream that's pronouncing an omen to him? Is, is, has his meteoric rise to success come to a halting grind already just after two years? Could this be a, a foretelling of a nation coming in and invading them? Or, or maybe it's a political coup. There's an assassination attempt of some sort. He just didn't know. And so what do world leaders do when they just don't know the answer to a question? Well, they call in the experts. So the experts are these magicians, Chaldeans, astronomers, and Nebuchadnezzar kind of really doesn't trust them. They're pretty smart individuals, very gifted in some ways. It was a Babylonian uh, astronomer who really calculated the number of days of a year, 365 days. In fact, he calculated it down to the very second. He was only 26 minutes and 55 seconds off which is incredible when you think about the technology of that day. 
So gifted in math, gifted in science, gifted in observation, but hearing from the gods, he's not buying it. So they say, tell us about the dream. What they would have done is they would have taken the symbols that he described in the dream, they would have went back to their manual, and they would have wrote this really creative construct of what this dream meant. But Nebuchadnezzar looks him right in the eye and he says, garbage. You're going to go and you're going to tell me what I dream. Because if you're having conversations with the gods, the gods know what I dream because they gave me the dream. They're going to tell you what I dreamed and then you're going to give me the interpretation. Bottom line, if you can't do that, then you got to go. And bottom line, they couldn't do it. Their gods didn't tell them what the dream was. They knew it. He knew it. Well, let's fast forward the tape a little bit. We get to verse 7 through 13, and, you know, what do the experts do when they don't have an answer to the question? Well, they do a good job of trying to stall. Nebuchadnezzar says, you're not going to stall. You tell me the interpretation or you guys die. They can't do it. So he orders this decree for everyone to die, including Daniel and the three friends. Now, think about these guys' lives up to this point. They've already undergone two dramatic events. They, they were ripped from their homeland. They were chained, and they were bound, and they marched them 900 miles to Babylon. And then they get put into this assimilation program where it's either get with the program or lose your head. And they have a big decision to make. Either they hold to their faith, and they risk their lives, or they succumb to the pressure. Well, they choose to practice good faith. Here now is a third major event. When you think of Daniel, a lot of us think of this like old sagely prophet with a big white beard who says really pithy statements that you're able to hold on to. But friends, Daniel's like 18 years old in this passage. 18. Uh, the age of our children when they're going off to college, the age where our children are going off to college and we don't trust them with a credit card. That age. And Daniel is so masterful with the way that he interacts with this pretty chaotic king, Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, I want us to take a little bit of a look at Daniel's character this morning for just a moment as we see why this young guy is able to be cool under pressure. The first thing I want you to see as we look at the scriptures is that Daniel, now listen carefully here, he asks before he acts. Daniel asks before he acts. Look at verses 14 to 16. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Now, Proverbs 29, 20 says this, there is more hope for a fool than for someone who speaks without thinking. This is a character issue. 
Daniel is said to be prudent and to exercise discretion. The Hebrew really carries the idea that he acts appropriately or tasteful to the moment. Now, pressure has a way of revealing who you are. God uses pressure to do that all the time. I think back over my own life, and there have been so many moments where there has been a lot of pressure, and I wasn't very proud of the way that I responded in that pressure, meaning God was saying, look, we got something to work on right now. Let me ask you, even right now, what's the pressure in your life? What kind of pressure are you facing in your life, and, and what is it revealing to you about your character? We all must become aware of what we are unaware of, okay? We must become aware of what we are unaware of. We, we can't always fully see the, the wake that we're creating as we're going about and doing life. We can't see our character. So God uses pressure. Now, let me ask you, what is the pressure and how are you responding to it? For example, if it's something that you're anxious over, are you exercising courage, which is good character, or are you caving to fear? If you have a big decision to make in the moment, do you act impulsively, which is bad character, or do you exercise discernment and patience in the midst of that? Daniel shows us what good character looks like. He doesn't go into this situation with Arioch and shoot first and ask questions later. He begins with the questions. Now, why is that important? Because I have to understand before I can do something about something. I have to ask before I act. And friend, we live in a culture today that wants to be and values being the first to report, not the first to be right. You see the difference? Well, this is bad character. You can't build a society of trust or be a person who is trustworthy if you care more about being first than being right. Let's look at another thing that Daniel does. In the text, it tells us that he leans into community. Look at verses 17 and 18. Then Daniel went to his house, and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. I have a quote that's sitting on my desk, and I need it as a reminder. It just says this, if you get relationships wrong, little else matters. I need that. I'm a hard-driving, independent kind of person, okay? I will just keep going and going and going, and I will forget about all the relationships around me. But I know from Scripture that God has designed me, and he's designed us to be relational creatures. Why? Because God's relational. God has existed in eternity in perfect relationship with himself. He's the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons living as one God together in unique harmony together. And if God created me in his image, then it means that I'm, I need to be like him in terms of my relationships. Do you see what Daniel does with Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah? He's living in Babylonian culture, yet he carves out 
this community in the midst of all of that. I'm going to be talking about this a lot moving forward. But here's the deal. The church has gone virtual. I don't just mean Osterville Baptist Church. I mean churches all over the world right now have gone virtual. And that's not making a negative statement. We've invested money in order to go virtual. There is some benefit to being virtual. You can have an increased impact. You can get the gospel out to more people. But the the liability with virtual is over time, you might become disembodied. What does that mean? Disembodied means disconnected. It means trying to exist without the body of Christ. I've been talking to some pastors all across America. I I spoke with one from Indiana, and he was telling me that in his church, one-third of the church is gathering physically, one-third is online, and the other third has just dropped out altogether. They're no longer even watching church. Friends, we are not going to make it in post-Christian America if we disembody. We cannot exercise good faith without good community. We must love, believe, and live together because what? We're better together. And Daniel knew this, which begs the question, do you have a Mishael? Do you have an Azariah? Do you have an Hananiah? Someone in your life who you can share the the deepest parts of your heart with, who you can trust yourself to, who you know wants something for you and not something from you? I tell you, when you find friends like that who are spiritually connected with you in that way, don't ever let them go. We all need that. Let's look at one more thing. We'll see that Daniel prays for God solutions. Notice in verse 10 that the wise men make a very big statement, and it's true. There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. They understood the problem. What Nebuchadnezzar is asking them to do is impossible. (laughs) I don't know what you dreamed last night, and I don't think I want to know what you dreamed last night, and you don't know what I dreamed. But Nebuchadnezzar says, look, you guys say you talk to the gods, so... Don't you think that God should be telling you something about what I dreamed? The problem with these gods is these gods do not speak, ever, because they don't exist. But Daniel engages in prayer because he knows that he's talking to a God who can reveal mysteries. Mystery just simply means in the Old Testament scriptures something that was formerly or previously unknown, hidden outside of human abilities or understanding that God reveals. And verse 19 tells us that's just what God does. He reveals to Daniel a vision in the night. You see, church, the the greatness of God is the fact that unlike the other gods who are nothing but wood and metal, The living God speaks to his people. He is the God who is there. He's not only transcendent and above and beyond us, but he's also imminent, which means his presence is with his people. So contrary to what Nietzsche says, God is not dead. 
Contrary to what the the deists would say, he's not absentee, he's not disinterested, and he's also not incapable of delivering upon his promises. That's the greatness of God. That's the God we worship, and that's the God that met Daniel in this situation, which leads Daniel to this beautiful prayer of praise. And he notes two important theological truths about God. Look at verse 20. He says that to God belong wisdom and might. God is infinitely wise. God is infinitely capable. You put that picture together, and it tells us that he's absolutely sovereign. Now get this. When you put that all together, you get this statement. He knows what to do how to do it, when to do it. And it is always within his power to do all that he intends to do just when he intends to do that. You got it? That's what God does. He changes times and seasons and removes kings and he sets up kings. That's why our our mission statement here at Osterville Baptist Church begins with the word worship. It's worship, transformation, mission, but it begins with worship. Now, when we think of worship, we tend to think of it as an event or an activity. It's something that we're doing right now, and we just sang some songs. But what I want you to understand about worship, it's not an activity. It's an attitude. Worship is the humble recognition that God is infinitely bigger than me. Infinitely bigger. How do I know that? Well, again, in Daniel, verse 22, he reveals deep and hidden things, things that are beyond me, things that are bigger than me, things that I can't understand unless God delivers. And it's with that kind of confidence, the attitude of worship, that Daniel can walk before the king of all kings of the Babylonian empire and stand confidently before him saying, Your magicians don't know anything, but I speak to a God who is in heaven, who is real. Verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And notice that Daniel takes none of the credit, verse 30. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. As Erica said so well before I came up to preach, the book of Daniel, the big idea, the main message, is not dare to be a Daniel. Even Daniel's self-aware of that in this verse. Do you see that with me? It's not about him being a superhuman person that we should all hope that we could be like someday, morally superior, and if we could just pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, then we would be a little better off. No, the main message of Daniel, the thing that Daniel wants you to understand as you look at his book, is dare to believe that God's in control, and he is in control. He demonstrates that as he tells us about history as we move forward. As we think about that, listen to this quote from Os Guinness in his book, Renaissance. He says, like ants on the vast floor of the Grand Canyon, none of us can see far enough and high enough to truly know where we are in the surging course of history. Only God knows. 
So Nebuchadnezzar is given this incredible dream of God's intentions with human history, and I would like to read that to you. It's verses 31 to 35. You saw a king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms silver as its middle, and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and of clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So the, the word image there represents a statue. This is a large human statue. And, and the metal in the statue represents four great empires that shall rule successively. Daniel explains that further in verses 36 through 43. So I'd like to unpack this a little with you. We're going to get a little bit of a history lesson for the history buffs out there. You're going to be really happy for those of you that don't really like history that much. You got to put your floaties on because we're about to jump in the deep end of the pool a little bit here. So let's do that. The, the, the first empire is the head of gold. Now, Daniel is pretty clear on what this is in verse 38. He says, you are the head, pointing at Nebuchadnezzar. And it's true, Nebuchadnezzar was the Neo-Babylonian Empire. He was. His rule was for 43 years, and that empire only lasts another 23 years. If you're thinking of it in time, 605 to 539 BC. In fact, Daniel outlives that empire. The chest and arms of silver is the next great power. That's the Medo-Persian Empire that was led by Cyrus the Great. So this empire was the forming of two nations, and when those nations come together, they take over Babylon and they rule human history in this part of the world for 208 years, 539 to 331 BC. The middle and thighs of bronze is Greece. It was in 332 BC that the armies of Alexander the Great marched out against Medo-Persia, and over a series of battles, there were decisive victories, and they take over the world. They dominate this part of the world for approximately 185 years, 331 to 146 B.C. Now, get this. When you're looking at Daniel, right, it's incredible. Here you have this prophetic vision that is hundreds of years before these empires come on the scene. He's predicting this. He's prophesying it. Some scholars, they, they look at this book and they say, oh, it must have been written in 150 B.C. You know why they come to that conclusion? Circular reasoning. This is too accurate. If, if it's this accurate, it couldn't have been written when Daniel wrote it. But when you look at the internal evidence of the book of Daniel, it is highly, highly, highly likely, and I believe this is God's word, so definitely likely, that the book was written in the 500s by Daniel the prophet. It's incredible. 
And this is God telling us and revealing to us, I am the God of history. Now, before we get to the fourth empire, I want us to see an important observation about this statue. Get this. Each of the metals in the parts below the head increasingly become less valuable and less impressive. So gold is far more valuable than silver and bronze and iron, and the head is more vital to the body than, of course, the feet. Now, what is, what is God telling us? Well, the, the statue represents humanity. So what is he telling us about human achievement, human power, human intellect? Well, first, I think that through this imagery, he's telling us that the progressivist vision of history where human achievement and human morality will get increasingly better along the way is false. It's not the right way to look at history. In fact, as the metals decrease in value, so do people increasingly secularize, move away from God. Secondly, when you look at the feet, the feet are a mixture of clay and iron, which is a very unstable foundation. So when you build the foundation of your worldview around the idea that people can figure it out, can make it happen, are in control of their destiny, that's a really shaky foundation to stake your life upon. Let's look at the fourth empire now. Look at verse 40 first. There shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. So it's clear in verse 40, if you follow my timeline, that the next empire to follow Greece is Rome, ancient Rome. The empire was, began in uh, 146 at the Battle of Carthage, and they really became the dominant player on the scene at that point. For the next so many years, Rome would rule the known world. There was division in Rome in 395 AD, and then moving from there, uh, the, the, the Eastern Empire lasts until AD 476, and the Western Empire falls finally in 1453. So this is a dominant empire. It is iron. It is crushing. And its legacy still lives with us today. But let's move to the next part of the statue, the feet. Now, the feet and toes, many scholars consider that this part of the statue is symbolic of a future empire, another kind of Rome. So you would have ancient Rome and future Rome. Now, look at the verses, 41 to 43. As you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be divided to kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so that they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. Now, a key principle in interpreting prophecy, biblical prophecy, is what is called prophetic telescoping. Let me help you understand this. Uh, you've gone to mountain ranges before, I'm sure. Beautiful mountains, New Hampshire, Vermont. Maybe you go to Rockies, Smokies down south, wherever you like. 
And to get a good view or vantage of the mountains, sometimes you would want to look at the mountains through a pair of binoculars or a telescope. Now, from that perspective, when you look at a mountain range, what happens to the the spatial distance of the mountains? Well, they come pretty close together. They're on top of one another. Let's change the view now. You get up on an airplane. You're looking at the mountains from an altitude now of 10,000 feet or something like that. Looking down, you can see that the ranges or the peaks of mountains, instead of being mashed up together, are actually miles apart from one another. It's a different view, a different vantage point. That happens in prophecy. You see this with Christ's first coming and his second coming. You'll look at passages, and it seems like both happen simultaneously. Same thing with this ancient Rome and future Rome. When you really look at it from God's vantage point, there's big gaps, hundreds of years, sometimes thousands of years. Now, you might be asking, well, how do we know that Daniel 2 is telescoping right now? Well, you have to look at Daniel chapter 7 to see that. You see, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are parallel passages. It it conveys the same history, the same succession of empires. And at the end of Daniel 7, we see that the, the coming of Christ happens at the end of this future empire, which tells us that it's sometime distant than ancient Rome, because guess what? Jesus didn't return when Rome fell, did he? So what do we know about this empire, this end times empire? First, it will be a divided kingdom, just as clay does not mix with iron. The kingdom, though, as a whole, because it contains iron, is powerful, but parts of the kingdom are like iron, powerful, and other parts of the kingdom are more like clay, weak, which gives this idea that this may be a conglomeration of nations. But there's no, even though they're a unified group, they're also a divided group. You look at the symbol of the toes on the statue, there are how many? Ten, right? Normally we'd say, well, human statues, of course, have ten toes, but again, you compare it to Daniel 7, And then you look at Revelation 13 and Revelation 17, 12. And it talks about the number 10 and a league of nations. So the picture becomes a little more clearer as we take Scripture and we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture together. Listen to these words from Steve Miller. Um, They're intriguing. They may be right. I think they're right. But it helps us to get a better picture of what this end times Rome will look like. He says, since Rome is part of Europe and the activities of the ancient empire considered in Europe, it is reasonable to assume that this area of the world will play a leading role in this future regime. In Daniel 7, the prophet indicates that from this empire will come the evil world leader of the last days commonly known as the Antichrist. Now, as we put this biblical message together and we look at our current events, I know that a lot of us are asking the question, when is Jesus coming back? Are are these events beginning to be fulfilled in our midst? And I got to say this, my, my honest answer to that question is, I just don't know. And Jesus said I wouldn't in the book of Matthew. However, 
when you compare this day and age that we live in, and you consider all the factors of this day and age, I think his return is very close. Why? We live in a day where there is globalization like there has never been in human history. Telecommunication, travel, right, around the world. You could get somewhere in 24 hours or less. Romans couldn't even conceive of that speed of travel. So you could envision now a world leader, an antichrist, who could mobilize people and and move anywhere around the world. How do I respond to that? The biblical message is clear. Always. First, if you don't know God, the question is, are you right with God? Well, how do you get right with God? You come to know God through his son, Jesus. By putting your faith in Jesus, you are in right relationship with God. And then you become a Christian and you look at these end times messages, not a message of condemnation or a fearful message, but of one of hope. But to the Christian, this is asking the question, are you distracted or are you wholeheartedly following Jesus? Because every time the scripture talks to us about the end times, it says, be found faithful. Be about the work. Follow Christ with your whole heart so that he might be pleased when he returns and finds you. How will he find you? And believe me, He will return. He will. And his intention, the first coming was salvation. His intention, the second coming, is to rule. Look at the scriptures here, 44 to 45. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. In A.D., 410, Alaric and the Visigoths came down to Rome and sacked it. Now, this set the civilized world of this time reeling. They looked at Rome and they said, Rome is the eternal city. Who could, who could possibly muster the might to compete with Rome, the Roman Empire? At this time, Rome had become a Christianized Rome. And so there was a great conflict that broke out between those who still held to the ancient Roman gods and the Christians. Uh, The pagans, those who held to the ancient gods, said statements like, the reason Rome has fallen is because we've abandoned the Roman gods for this Christian god, and they've left Rome, and they've left us to our own fate. The other thing they said is they were looking at the Christian ethic of love and forgiveness, and they said, Christians just don't have the strength to rule the world. We need someone that can be a little more dominant and brutal to rule a big world like this. Well, Augustine, three years into the conversation, decided to weigh in. He was the bishop of Hippo, and he wrote his magnum opus, The City of God. And he lays out in this a grand vision of human kingdoms, human history, 
and he encapsulates this vision with the idea that there are two cities operating at any given time, the city of God and the city of man. Guinness writes this, at the heart of humanity are two humanities of the heart, those with a love of self and a heart dedicated to themselves and those with a love of God and a heart dedicated to God. From these two hearts grows two humanities, two ways of life, and eventually two cities, the city of God, which is the heavenly city typified by Jerusalem, and the city of man, which is the earthly city typified by either Babylon or by Rome. But Augustine saw that with these two cities in the here and now, that these two cities are intermingled, indistinguishable, often hard to tell apart, which tells us, Christian, that we have to be mindful to not be of the world, but to only be in the world. And we're seeing that even now in our own day and age. Christians are getting distracted. They are. They're getting distracted, particularly as we look at this current political moment. You have Christians who are Democrat, Christians who are Republican. They're both looking at the political moment right now, and they're saying this, if my party loses, then so goes the country, and there is no hope. First, don't ever call yourself a Republican Christian or a Democratic Christian. Nothing modifies your Christianity. We are a Christian. That's what we are. And, and we don't put our hope in political elections. We put our ultimate hope in an eternal city, a heavenly city. And we believe in that because we believe that there is a rock who is returning. And Daniel says to us this, his kingdom shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. So get this, church. You can live in post-Christian America, and you don't have to describe to Nietzsche's statement, God is not dead. God is quite alive. In fact, Nietzsche is dead. We can live good faith. We can love, we can believe, we can live. In fact, I want to leave you with one last good faith statement from G.K. Chesterton. He says, at least five times the faith has to all appearances gone to the dogs. And in each of these five cases, it was the dog that died. Shall we pray? Father, this morning my prayer for our church family is simple. Help us to dare to believe that you are in control. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.